I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing U.S.-China economic relations and how to view Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's recent trip to Beijing. Here to discuss this and more is Dr. Meg Brethmeyer. She is the F. Warren McFarland Associate Professor in the Business Government International Economy Unit at Harvard Business School. She is also a faculty associate at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, the Fairbanks Center for East Asian Studies at Harvard, and the Harvard Faculty Committee on Southeast Asia. Professor Rithmeyer's primary expertise is in comparative political economy development, with a focus on China and Asia. Her work focuses on China's role in the world, including Chinese outward investment and lending practices, and economic relations between China and other countries, especially the United States. Thanks for joining us today, Meg. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. It's great to be with you. I'm really grateful that we have this opportunity to chat a bit about Secretary Yellen's visit to Beijing. And I understand that you're currently in Beijing right now. Right. Yes, I've been here. Basically, I arrived the day she left, and so I'm here until Sunday. And then John Kerry, I guess, is coming Sunday. So just missing them both. So. Given that you're in Beijing now and you've had a number of meetings, both with Chinese government officials, but also with、uh, China, leading Chinese scholars and academics, what is the overall atmosphere like and feel like in Beijing right now after her visit? Well,、uh, I'd love to say that everything seems great and we're back on a great footing, but it doesn't quite feel that way.、Uh, it was great to have、um, Secretary Yellen in Beijing and in that message that the U.S. is ready to talk again and. It has been well received. I think the idea that U.S. government officials are willing to come to China and willing to sit down with their Chinese counterparts and discuss elements of the relationship that are thorny, as well as those on which they agree. So you saw Yellen focusing on climate finance and things like that. So there's a sort of realm of issues、uh, on which the U.S. and China can talk collaboratively in some ways, or at least aspirationally collaboratively on climate, on public health, and those are the kind of secure realms where everyone feels like the problems are less less thorny. But then there are other issues on technology. Economic cooperation, security issues that are more difficult, and so it seems that Yellen was able to talk about all of those things, even the difficult things. And so, just having her here, I think, was a good sign. I mean, people have a bunch of different terms for what they're, how they're characterizing the current moment in U.S.-China relations—a kind of fragile stability or a mini thaw. <laughs> I'm not sure where I come down on those different things, but certainly Blinken's visit and then Yellen's visit has been part of that that message coming from the United States. On the other hand, I think a lot of what Yellen has been trying to do since her speech at SAIS in April and in her meetings here was to clarify that the United States is not interested in containing China and does not want to suppress China's economic rise. So the common terms here, as you may know, are the U.S. wants to suppress and contain China, and so she's trying to draw a distinction between. The U.S. government's willingness to see China's economy do well and to see China grow、um, and rise, but security issues, which she'd like to define more narrowly, that is a difficult message to convey. Both kind of at the at the scholarly level, the academics I've been talking to. At the very kind of vernacular level of individual citizens, even Chinese businesses, even American businesses, but for sure Chinese officials, have a hard time making that distinction between 
the, the language is now decoupling versus de-risking. And the message is we don't want to decouple, we just want to de-risk. But from China's perspective, de-risking involves cutting China off from some very necessary inputs into their economic growth, like semiconductors um, and other things, semiconductors most notably. And so that's a hard task to convince the Chinese and the American business community and the general public from both sides that this is a more narrow policy, more considered especially on the heels of October 7th. And then we anticipate, of course, the announcement of outbound investment controls um, relatively soon. So it's, it's a hard task. She made good progress. But from my, from my reading of the mood, everyone's still very frustrated and very distrustful towards the United States. So Meg, you mentioned that it was very good for Secretary Yellen to be there to communicate some of the key messages and in many ways to reassure China to the extent possible in terms of U.S. intentions with respect to the U.S.-China economic relationship. You also said she made good progress, but I did want to press you to, to see if there were any specific changes that you've seen since her meeting with respect to any of the issues that you laid out, whether those were the harder issues to deal with or issues where there were more common ground between the United States and China. In a word, no. So the the visit, I, I think the expectations for the visit were not that there would be tangible agreements or you know anything like even a, a path towards a, a phase one trade implementation schedule, anything like a, a kind of serious set of agreements or even you know joint understanding statements or anything like that. It was really just a visit, a visit to say, here we are. We take the relationship seriously. We want to talk again. We want to convey, we want to have a chance to come to Beijing and convey what we're trying to say and the very difficult distinctions that we're trying to make within U.S. policy toward China and toward engagement with China. But I don't think anyone really expected something tangible to come out of this visit. And so far, indeed, nothing has. And what do you think about the meetings that she had and the access she received in China? There was some, of course, some press coverage noting that she wasn't expecting a meeting with Xi and she didn't get one. And of course, there was also coverage of where he was uh, when she when she was in China. How, how do you put, put all of this together to assess both the quality and the number of meetings she had with Chinese government officials? Uh, well, she met with her counterparts um, in China and um, she did not meet with Xi Jinping. I'm not sure that we ever had a real sense that she would meet with Xi Jinping, although I'm sure she would have liked that. And, and that would have been, you know, ideal in some ways. But he wasn't here um, during the visit. And that was probably intentional is what I'm hearing. You know, just the idea that it wasn't on the table because he was not going to be in Beijing at that time. Um, but, you know, it's really hard to overstate the lack of communication between the two countries over the last several years and how bad it's actually gotten, right? So we saw in Singapore, you know, the refusal to talk to U.S. Uh, defense officials. And so, and then when Blinken canceled his visit, I think that was another big blow. And so a lot of what's happening here is reestablishing that communication and the idea that on the second visit of a high-level U.S. official, they would have turned up Xi Jinping, I think, is, is not quite where the Chinese side is right now. And I think, you know, Xi himself, it seems... I mean, the, the key word in everything in China right now is national security. 
Right, so national, I mean, the 20th Party Congress, if you read it, national security is obviously the most mentioned term, um, and not economic growth, which is how things have been in the past. Growth and reform have been the focus, and now national security is the focus. And so Steve himself doesn't give any indications that he's particularly interested in um, the economic relationship between the United States. He sees things through a security lens. And so Janet Yellen is an economic official who would like to talk about that commercial side of the relationship. And so I don't think this would have been high priority for Xi Jinping. And certainly she did not get a meeting with him. And I don't know, I've seen press reports that she wanted a meeting, but I don't think at any point that was actually expected. Um, so, so this kind of went exactly how we thought, which is that she met for quite a long period of time with her counterparts in China um, and had pretty deep discussions with them. She also met with members of you know, the American business community, and she met with um, Chinese economists, which was you know, kind of a, um, a feeding frenzy on social media about all of that I'm sure you've been following. So she met really with the economic side of things and and not with Xi Jinping. I don't think that's a failure for the visit. I think basically the the bar is so low for getting American officials to China and getting them to talk again that um, having her meet with her own counterparts and discuss the relationship in that way w- was a success for her visit. Meg, you mentioned that the key word in China now is national security and how Xi Jinping is I guess I would phrase it as less interest in economic growth and national security. But do you sense that also among the folks that you're talking with? Obviously, some of the folks that you're meeting with are probably more econ focused. Right, they are. So, you know, in the United States now, we have this interesting set of ideas that, in fact, economic growth is not a separate issue from national security in the United States either, right? So it used to be, you know, back in the, to some, the good old days in the 90s and the 2000s, you know, the more economically intertwined our economies were, the safer we were, the more we had common interests, the more we were all moving in a similar direction. And now, right, that is not the feeling, either in Washington or in Beijing. And you, know, the origins of that are difficult, and we need to debate them. And you know, my one message is the the fact that the Chinese don't quite understand the difference between de-risking and decoupling. You know, means I think that we we haven't really effectively conveyed what exactly our problems are with the Chinese economy and why we need to de-risk. What is the risk, right, from the U.S. government perspective? So let me just say a few things uh, about that, and then uh, you know, talk about what what people are thinking about the economy. So how do people think about, you know, the distinction between the economic growth and national security? Well, it used to be that, you know, what was good for business was good for the United States and what was good for business was good for China. And on both sides, there's a sort of hostility, right, to what the business community is doing, both domestically, especially in China, and, you know, transnationally with the United States. And so we've had a series of reconfigurations of American institutions, really, um, think, starting from the, the FIRMA legislation, which overhauled the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States to give it a broader purview to examine Chinese investment um, coming into the United States, as well as renewed export controls and then the, the kind of constant updating of entity listing. And so I'll say one refrain is every meeting Government officials like to, you know, list out how many Chinese firms have been added to the entity list, how many export restrictions there are on Chinese firms. And my, you know, my scholarly view on that is that the logic of, of having to do that, right, is comes from a reconfiguration of the Chinese domestic economy that's happened really over the last 10 years. So I'm sure your listeners are well aware of Made in China 2025, um, so that, that which really started 
in earnest in 2015. So China's industrial policy, which is seeking more domestic capacity in a bunch of priority sectors, almost all of which could be considered dual use. So dual civilian and military use. So those are semiconductors, AI, quantum computing, and the list goes on and on. And so what happened with Made in China 2025, in addition to a suite of laws in China, most recently, we've been talking about the anti-espionage law, which may, which was an interesting focus of Yellen's visit as well. But also, you know, starting even in 2015, the national security law, which was, you know, revamped in 2020, the cybersecurity law, the data localization laws, so on, which have seemed to give the Chinese state a wide legal berth to in- interfere and in, in, in perhaps commandeer the assets of any firm in China. So the way that I explain this is that 10 years ago, when I would go to DC and talk to people about the Chinese economy, people would say, who really owns Huawei? That's what we really want to know. The problem with Huawei is we don't know who owns it. Well, now no one cares who owns any firm in China, because the assumption is that it doesn't matter what your corporate structure is, what your ownership is, that there's no real boundary between Chinese firms and the state. And so in that new world where we assume that the Chinese state can use its firms, no matter who owns them, to acquire strategic capabilities or to use strategic capabilities, then there needs to be uh, you know, further restrictions on what kinds of technology those firms are acquiring, what kinds of data about Americans they're acquiring. That's um, ostensibly the, the TikTok controversy. But also you know, the ways in which interdependence may limit the U.S.'s ability to protect itself. And so I'm not saying I agree with all that. I'm just saying I, to my, on my understanding, that's the logic. So when we used to be in this world where economic interdependence was really good, now it's a source of insecurity for the U.S. national security interest and also for Chinese firms. So the irony of Made in China 2025 is that it really came from a fear that the United States would weaponize supply chains that the U.S. dominated or at least held sway over against China and prevent China from getting the inputs it needed to grow from this stage of economic development, kind of export-oriented manufacturing development, to high-tech economic development. And so the language that came with Made in 2025 was all about self-reliance and you know making China a dominant manufacturing power. That's a typical kind of propaganda language that comes from China, whether they really mean that or not. Do they mean actual dominance? Do they mean actual self-reliance? It doesn't matter that much because people in D.C. heard words they did not like. So then the focus then is on this national security issue and how it affects economic growth. On the ground in China... The economy is not good. And I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but the, the challenges in the Chinese economy are very serious right now. And they are not all related or even most related to efforts by the United States to restrict China's access to high technologies. They are structural, looking at China's demography. The recovery from COVID lasted just a couple of months. We're seeing you know, almost a quarter youth unemployment in some places. The trade data is down. The investment data is has collapsed, um, both transnationally and domestically. And, you know, Xi Jinping's domestic campaigns against entrepreneurs, right, against the tech sector, um, you know, cracking down on all sorts of firms within China have led to this environment where the Chinese economy is in a pretty perilous state right now. And so people are worried about that. Politically, it is easy to blame that on the United States. It's much easier for the party to say, 
The problem is we're being suppressed and contained. The problem is not that we're unwilling or unable to initiate the kinds of reforms that would actually allow entrepreneurs to invest and innovate and do these kinds of things. And so uh, for the you know for the scholars I've spoken to in the and the government officials they want to well this, the government officials want to tell a good story about the Chinese economy they want to say growth is at four percent we're going to hit the five percent target this year everything's going great and at the you know the the lower levels in society and among intellectuals they know that the economic problems are very serious and they think that the party's national security imperative is trading off with its willingness to actually engage in economic growth. And, and I think that's a problem. Make uh, so much to follow up on there. Uh, maybe one question I have to ask you is you mentioned that China is, of course, facing a lot of internal economic challenges that are not related to U.S. efforts to restrict technology to China. But you also said that, of course, it could be politically easier for China to blame the United States. Are you seeing that sort of narrative uh, right now when you're in Beijing or talking to Chinese scholars? or Absolutely, right? So absolutely. It's much easier to blame the United States than it is to focus on. So the message is sort of, it's interesting and internally inconsistent. It's the Chinese economy is doing really well. Um, you know, we're growing really well. We're doing great. It's 4%, you know, and, and it, it's funny. There was, you know, one meeting where you know, people were talking, a Chinese official was saying, you know, everyone's saying the U.S. economy is doing very well because it grew at 1.5%. Well, I don't understand that. China grew at 4%, but everyone's saying Chinese economy is not doing very well. And we had to kind of say, well, there's some problems with the data that we think on the Chinese side. And, you know, comparing growth rates is one thing. But when you think about the Chinese economy, we still have 800 million people who are underemployed, living in the countryside, who have not yet reached middle class status. And so, of course, China has you know more, more room to grow than the United States would have in the first place. So that the part of the message, which is everything's going great, is inconsistent with when things are not going great, it's the United States' fault, right? So the idea that, you know, the the the, the words are, you know, suppress or contain and suppress um, the Chinese economy. And I think that's an easy language. What we're also seeing right now, you know, everyone realizes there's a slowdown. So it's not as if on the streets of Beijing, people are thinking that everything's going really well at 4%. People understand, they know people who are unemployed. They understand that, you know, the, the trade data are down. They understand basically that the economy is not doing well. Consumption data, you know, are, are show are reflect basically the mood that I see, which is I don't, I don't feel great about the future and I'm unwilling to make the investments right now. The property sector, which is intimately connected right to almost every middle class family in China and how they think about their assets becoming worth more or less. And they're watching that deflation in the property sector and they're watching their assets worth less than they were last year. So they're not tricked by, you know, the, the narrative that the Chinese economy is, is doing well. You know, they also understand that, you know, that's partly a domestic policy situation, but they're also unhappy, right, with what the United States is doing and do not understand the difference between decoupling and de-risking and do not understand, you know, I mean, it's one thing to say from the U.S. side, look, we, we were happy for you to grow. We're happy for our firms to sell basic consumer goods in China. You know, we love economic engagement. Well, on the Chinese side, what they think they need to grow to the next stage are these high tech inputs. And if the U.S. is restricting those to them, it really does does feel like containment because that's part of what you know they they are fundamentally seeking in their engagement with the globe um but that is a message and so you know one one thing i've been sort of thinking about is the ways in which 
there's a, a little comparison, if you will, um, to how the Biden administration dealt with Ukraine, right? Which is to say, you know, we know that the, we know that Ukraine that that Russia is going to invade invade Ukraine. We know that they're going to. This is their plan. This is their plan. And then, you know, they were unable to say, you forced us to do it. You precipitated this by some, you know, they were unable to do the false flag or, you know, any of those kinds of things. And then it really did. The world was pretty convinced. Yes, this was a a generally in a a short term sense, an unprovoked invasion. And so the United States, though, when we have, you know, people like Jake Sullivan saying very clearly, we want to keep China behind as far behind as we can in three sectors that are as important to the Chinese economy and the well-being of, of, of Chinese people. So he said, you know, advanced computing, biotech and, and artificial intelligence, then the way that's received in China is that is a form of containment. Right. Those are those are the sectors of growth in the future. And so. Chinese people can hold both of those ideas in their head at the same time. Basically, that that ha- that half of what's going on may be the domestic policy environment, but the external environment is also important. And so they're not going to be totally convinced that it's just the U.S. keeping them down and keeping them unemployed. They also know um, about seized domestic economic campaigns and you know have their own troubles with the economy, even though they're not as willing to talk about it as they used to be, because partly... The economy is now within the realm of national security. And so um, it's, you know, it's it's no longer the space where everyone wants to be able to talk to foreigners about it just because it is quite sensitive right now. Really, really appreciate this laydown of sort of how China thinks about how the United States has tried to recast what we're trying to do with respect to the economic relationship with China. I did want to follow up on several items that have been discussed as potential topics that Secretary Yellen might discuss with China, as well as topics that China might want to raise to the secretary. And you touched on some of them, right? That Trump era tariffs, you said no movement on those. Any movement on discussions related to exchange rate or U.S. holding, uh, sorry, Chinese holding of U.S. Treasury debt? To my knowledge, no. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not really sure I can really answer that question. The holding of U.S. Treasury debt is not a negotiation between governments. Those are open market operations, right? And so that's not... Traditionally, you know, the U.S. sells its its debt on open markets and the purchaser is the purchaser. And so that's that's a difficult thing to come to an agreement on when we've seen agreements in the past on things like exchange rates. Right. Or government debt. Right. That's usually an exceptional policy process. So, you know, and 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 you might want to talk about the exchange rate also. And I'll I'll tell you, you there has been discussion about that this week. And the mention that comes through a lot from mostly from the American side is the Louvre Accords or the Plaza Accords, right? The negotiations with Japan in the 80s and 90s on the exchange rate. And those were exceptional policy processes, right? So that was a very exceptional process through which several large economic powers multilaterally sort of came together to make agreements to make adjustments within the global economy. That took a lot of political capital, a lot of trust, a lot of goodwill. I do not see anything like that possible between the United States and China. But people often think, you know, I mean, the the, me- the mechanics of the government debt issue are, are very difficult, right, for a lot of people to understand. But those are open market transactions that would be very difficult to negotiate on a government to government level. And Meg, you also mentioned that among the range of meetings Secretary Yellen had, she also met with U.S. business leaders in China. I suspect that she probably heard a earful of some of the challenges they face operating in China. Do you see anything from her trip that showcases making progress in dealing with any of the challenges that firms have there? 
It's been very interesting. Um, and I've also met with some members of the U.S. business community um, while I've been here. And it's interesting because what is what is all the concern in Washington is not necessarily all the concern for American representatives in Beijing. And the gap between Beijing or you know China-based offices of U.S. multinationals and headquarters seems pretty large, right? So we're also seeing you know U.S. business people come to China for the first time in several years, right? So they haven't you know show me a CEO who's willing to quarantine for 21 days. Um, so they haven't been willing to come here for quite a long period of time, and there's anxiety about coming here now. A lot of which is coming from this espionage law, this revised espionage law, which was implemented in、um, early July. And so many of your listeners know about the raids on Bain and Mints and Capvision. Capvision, by the way, is a Chinese company; it's not an American company. And so、um, many of our interlocutors have wanted to emphasize that to say, look, it's not that we're singling out American businesses; we are, we are singling out, act, you know, basically behavior that we think is against the law. And, and Chinese companies are just as subject to the. Implementation of that law, but the the U.S. side is very concerned about this espionage law because it basically criminalizes collecting data on.、Um, well, it's very vague on the uh, uh, number one, right? So it, it says you know you can't conduct research that's or, or collect information re- related to China's national security, and you know that's a very vague set of definitions. And the fear is that it's basically carte blanche to the Chinese Ministry of State Security or various police offices to say. Look, define this as you will. If you want to go after some office in whatever city that's doing something you don't like, now you have the legal foundation to do that. And so, there's a lot of anxiety on the U.S. side, especially after the experiences of Bain and Mints, that basically American business people aren't safe in China. Fundamentally, it's illegal, perhaps, to do due diligence at this point. So, to map corporate structures, to figure out what relationships are. And to do research on firms if they're considering, you know, mergers, acquisitions, investments, those kinds of things. And so there's a lot of anxiety about the personal consequences of things like that. And of course, the detention of the two Michaels, you know, looms large for a lot of people. If it can happen to them, perhaps it can happen to me. And so she was. Conveying right to、uh, Chinese authorities how much anxiety there is about that. Interestingly, on the ground in China, a lot of representatives of multinationals here are saying we're not that worried about those things. We we're not that concerned about it, but our headquarters are super concerned about it. And so the concerns that people have locally are still really the same ones they would have had ten years ago. Market access, on a kind of unfair playing field, those kinds of things. And they're saying basically that all of these hyper-securitized concerns are are much more prevalent, right, in the heads of of, of Washington and headquarters than they are for people on the ground here. But Janet Yellen was certain, certainly talking about that、um, with her Chinese counterparts. I mean, the other really interesting thing is just. The Chinese economy, because it's been so insular for the last three years or so, you just haven't had a lot of people coming here. I mean, I've had twice. I've had people stop me and be like, "You're the first foreigner I've seen so long," which is just a strange feeling in Beijing, right? But people will say, you know, a, a lot of foreigners just haven't come, and China's economy has been so digitally transformed over the last few years. It's really hard to get around here without the apps,、um, you know, without the right payment systems. You know, there's you can't flag a cab on the street anymore. You have to order one through an app, and that is a really illegible process for a lot of Americans. And so many people are just saying, "Why would I bother with this?" And so actually, part of what I think American officials have been saying is, "You guys have to make the system open, right, to foreigners. We need to be able to use foreign credit cards if we're going to be." 
be able to, you know, because a lot of these apps don't take foreign credit cards and then you're just sort of stuck in a place where you ha you're holding cash on the side of the road and you can't get anywhere. And so that's, I think, a pretty considerable barrier. It's hard to get people, you know, on a plane to come to China for a, fo a few weeks if they feel like they're going to be unable to get around on their own. And so those are some of the barriers as well. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some clarification of the of the espionage law in the next few weeks to say here not you know China work you you know this for sure but China works through ambiguity so they're not likely that they don't they like discretion they don't like to draw clear lines to say you can do this and you can't do that and so they're not going to eliminate that ambiguity right but they but I I I wouldn't be surprised at seeing some clarification of that law to say look we're not going after companies that are doing due diligence if you're collecting economic research it's fine but just because they've heard such an earfall about these particular laws on the other hand one really interesting set of conversations has been about data access, right? So we've seen databases cut off from, from China. So when database that many financial services firms use to do due diligence or collect information on possible investment targets, I've used it in my own academic research, everything from that, right, to the China National Knowledge Infrastructure System, which is just access to Chinese journals, right, um, academic journals. Um, and so that a lot of those have been increasingly restricted on the U.S. side. And the response from the Chinese side is, well, you're using this data to collect information about Chinese firms and then to sanction them. So if you're, you know, if, if the U.S. is using open source intelligence or, you know, members of the policy community are accessing data on Chinese firms, then using it to say, look, you have investment from Chinese companies or you're a Chinese military investment or invested company or related company, then why should we provide access to data that you're only using against us? And that's a, been a pretty clear refrain. And so I think these things, which in my mind, before I came here, I thought would be easy wins, right? Just let us have access to data again. Let the company, let, let everyone do research, right? Let everyone do due diligence. It's all swept up, right, in the security concerns and the kind of tit for tat. And so I, I'm a little more pessimistic, actually, even about these, these low hanging fruit type things than I was last week. And in terms of low hanging fruit, even arguing for access to more just basic data on what's happening in China, I guess part of perhaps why you're, it's difficult to make a case is you're, you're not able to provide any examples of how you're using this data to in a positive way, that's actually helping Chinese companies, right? Or, or is that part of the conversation of what they're trying to seek from us? It's absolutely in China's interest to allow people to have data on their economy, right? So, I mean, it's in their interest in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, they're not as desperate for U.S. investment capital as some people would make us think that they are, right? So, so you know, the idea of, I mean, FDI in China has completely collapsed from the U.S. Um, over the last several years. I mean, it's really low right now. Um, but overall, investment is really high. So Nick Lardy said in the New York Times, it was a, you know, I thought it was well expressed. You know, it's a rounding error, basically. U.S. private investment capital coming into the high tech sectors in China is a rounding error anyway. And so they're not that desperate for it. But look, it's not it's not in China's interest to seem illegible to the outside world, right? Whether it's American businesses or European businesses that want to invest in China, people need data on how you know, a certain sector is going and what's the competitive distribution within a sector and what is a firm's revenues? What's the potential market for something, right? And as a scholar, right, I need data to be able to better explain what's going on in China. So the example that I gave was, you know, every, a lot of the U.S. news media reported CapVision to be a, an American company. 
And I kept wanting to say, no, it's a Chinese company and wanting to send a screenshot of their corporate ownership structure, but I could no longer access it on my database. And so that's what I kept telling the Chinese officials, right? I'm trying to show nuance within how the Chinese economy is governed. The sad thing about that is if the perception from D.C. is all Chinese firms are potentially part of the state, now we don't have any access on Chinese firms. So we have to I think that assumption becomes sort of reified. Right. Which is that we don't know what's going on. So we just have to assume that everything is possibly an asset of the state at this point. And so I think it's in China's interest to be legible to the rest of the world um, and for that data to be there if they want investment, right? If they want, you know, companies coming here to do business, which they seem to, right? So there, you've seen all these provincial governments rolling out the red carpet for multinational companies. We've seen all these reports all through the spring of provincial governments going to various parts of Europe on delegations to say, hey, come invest in Jiangsu, come invest in Zhejiang. And, you know, Li Chang had this big trip to Europe, right, where he was kind of trying to say, the Chinese economy is doing well, we still need your business, don't listen to the Americans. You know, you get to choose your own relationship with China. Well, it's not just the U.S. that needs access to data, right? I mean, any company from any part of the of the world is going to want to access data about the kind of investment they're making. And so I think it's in China's interest to be open to that data. It's unfortunately just become part of the collateral damage between the, the securitization of the economic relationship. Thank you. I wanted to go back a little bit more to what we uh, began the conversation about, which is Yellen's trip. And I want to ask about sort of your interpretation of a Chinese action prior to her trip and then go beyond that to look at what you see moving forward after her trip. So, of course, right before her trip, what was dominating U.S. media was the Chinese export restrictions on two rare earth minerals. And of course, that wasn't didn't just come out of the blue, given all the other actions that have been taking in this sector, both by the U.S. and some of our allies and partners. How did you interpret that, particularly the timing right before Secretary Yellen's trip? Well, I think it's it's pretty obvious and maybe what you expect. So, you know, on the one hand, everyone was sort of making fun of those restrictions, like, oh, now I have to look at the periodic table, you know, how, you know, we're restricting semiconductors and they're restricting these piddling little, you know, minerals. Actually, I've learned how important those minerals really are to EV supply chains. And so it's not an insignificant thing. And so there are a number of ways, I think, to interpret it. The timing, I think, is what it seems to be, which is we also have these tools, I just want to remind you. And and I think, you know, the Chinese government works experimentally. It's not used to restricting exports of specific items. Um, and so I think a lot of what it's doing is experimenting with how that's going to work and how different people are going to react, right? It'd be one thing if they start restricting much more important kind of inputs into those supply chains, um, polysilicon or something, right? That would be a much bigger deal. And so I think they're trying to see how people will react and test the waters a little bit. And those are also really important, I think, when we think about the U.S. overtures to allies, right, to say, get on board with our export restrictions. We saw great U.S. efforts in the Netherlands and Japan to get those countries on board with the October 7th controls. And so this is a way to say, for China to say to some of those other countries, remember, we also have some leverage, right? We also have some things. And, you know, they wanted leverage in advance of Yellen's visit, right? To say, we also put things out there. And so if you have something, a card on the table that the other side wants to unwind, I think that's more strategic. And so doing it then. I don't think this will be the end of it, right? I think now they've got equipment, right, to make these kinds of export restrictions. It's hard not to read it as a tit for tat, and it'll probably become more tit for tat, right, where China says, if you're going to cut us off from this, we're going to cut you off from this. 
that is sort of like a trade war, which is nobody wins in a lot of ways. And so I'm not optimistic to see things go in that direction. On the other hand, you know, there's there's so much about the U.S. economic, uh, U.S.-China economic competition that seems to both sides to be existential. I don't think it's existential. I don't think China's economy presents an existential threat to the United States. That's my personal view. And a lot of people would disagree. But the problem is that all of these things, right? So Jake Sullivan saying we want to keep them behind, right? The Trump administration saying, you know, um, their campaign against Huawei to say we can't have any high tech vendors. That's home country is the CCP, right? All of those things, there's no room for compromise on those things, right? Whereas at least with these like little export restrictions, there is room for compromise, right? So the more that there are small things where there can be some transactional negotiations, I know it seems kind of counterintuitive, but I actually welcome those things because it at least gives them something to talk about. If you're going to get Chinese economic officials and U.S. economic officials to sit down and say, well, we think you should let us rise. We think we need access to all the high-tech things in your economy. And the U.S. on the other side saying, we're trying to keep you a few generations behind in everything that's important. Well, what's the talk going to end up in something tangible? No, right? So at least if there, there's, there's smaller things on the table, a more transactional approach to say, look, if you can make these guarantees about you know not letting U.S. Uh, high-end chips go into autonomous weaponry or, you know, generative AI or something like that, then you can have these things. And then if you, you know, remove those restrictions, we'll remove the restrictions on these minerals. And so I, I don't necessarily think that's a total downward spiral. It might actually just be room to negotiate. Hmm, interesting. So you're saying that if China does uh, operate more tit for tat or uh, take more measures to retaliate against the United States, it could actually offer space for both sides to negotiate restrictions down because both sides are seeing what the other side could do. That is kind of the classic negotiation theory, right? Is that if both sides have a little bit of leverage. But I think I would like to see more conversations about things that are actually actionable, right? Where there's some space to come to an agreement rather than, you know, the big policy spaces um, where the overall goals seem, you know, completely at odds with one another. So those are mutually exclusive goals. If China wants military civil fusion and wants, you know, to be, if it truly wants to be a dominant and self-reliant economic power, well, then there's really no room to compromise with the United States. If the United States really wants to keep China's economy as far behind as it possibly can in every sector, well, then what space is there to negotiate about that? And so in a sad sort of ironic sense, having smaller things to negotiate at least gives somebody a goal they can reach or perhaps something they can talk about with some action item. And, and I, I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing. I think that shows how, how bad things are when, when I think that having, you know, export restrictions is a good thing because it gives somebody something to talk about. So, Meg, I want to wrap up uh, the podcast with one final question for you. Uh, so as you look at what's been happening since Secretary Yellen's trip, uh, what was achieved or not achieved or discussed during the trip, how do you view the future of the U.S.-China economic relationship? Well, things are still really, really fragile, really fragile. And we are likely to see outbound investment controls coming pretty soon. And that is going to be perceived in China as further evidence that the United States is trying to de-risk on the way to decoupling, which is the way that they think about it. 
And so things, I, I mean, I would, I think this is a great step having U.S. officials visit Beijing. So Blinken, Yellen, and then Kerry's coming, possibly Gina Raimundo in the fall. I think those are all really good steps, but we're a pretty long way from stabilizing anything, I would say. And, you know, I, I'm terrified that we're one, one incident away from something even worse, right? So we saw with the the balloon incident, which I'm tired of talking about, I'm sure you are too, but we saw, you know, how how quickly things can go off the rails and just those lack of the lack of communication between counterparts in the United States and in China amplifies that misunderstanding, amplifies the mistrust and means that, you know, if there were any kind of crisis situation, you know, not necessarily even a military crisis type situation, but you know, but any kind of crisis situation that those the, the biggest countries in the world are not able to talk to each other with ease. And so I wouldn't say that after her plane left on Sunday, I was like, everything's going to be fine now. You know, they're talking again. Um, I'm not sure it really works that way. I do understand that after her visit, some mid-level officials and part of her team will be more constantly here to talk to people. And that is absolutely terrific. So if there are people from the U.S. Department of Commerce or Treasury who are more regularly in contact with their Chinese counterparts, then these misunderstandings, I think, um, and, you know, the more that Washington speaks with one voice, haha, very hard, right? <laughs> the more that Washington speaks with one voice about, um, you know, the, the rationale for why the United States thinks these restrictions are necessary, the more clarity the Chinese side gets that, and I, and I think it's genuine. So I don't think the United States really wants to contain China and prevent its economic rise. But, you know, the suite of, of tools that the United States has used to restrict Chinese growth in certain sectors are pretty threatening to the Chinese. And so if there is a logic through which they can explain the, you know, why, why those controls feel necessary to the United States and further, what would be necessary for the United States to consider rolling some of those things back, right? So it seems a little bit to me like the U.S. is in an era of more and more restrictions, right? With the, both, I mean, it's 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 interesting, you know, the the phrase that many people use is economic statecraft, and within you know the world of the U.S. used to be you know open for business, lobbying everyone to be more and more liberalized, and now we're in the world of we're constantly putting restrictions on what transnational commerce can be. And we're not in the world of removing those restrictions. And so that seems uh, removing restrictions would be a better footing. Not that, not that I'm advocating we do that now. I think some conditions have to be met, but it's not clear to the Chinese what those conditions are. And so the more that the sides are meeting just to understand my worldview is this and your worldview is this, I think then you know, the more that we can possibly think about in the future coming to a place to agree on those things. But that seems really, really kind of optimistic and pretty far off from where we are right now. But the idea that mid-level officials will be in more constant dialogue and there'll be more frequent visits, ideally both ways, is, is really great. We're looking to the, I think, that the APEC summit, which will be in D.C., and, and see, see how things go there. But that's another opportunity, I think, for everyone to be together. One final, final question, Meg. Uh, you mentioned outbound investment controls might come next. And you also mentioned earlier that China is acting more tit for tat. How do you think China will react, respond to outbound investment controls? I'm not sure. I'm not sure in that. I mean, China's you know economic strength, its leverage in the relationship has always been in its 
in you know China as a source of multinational growth for American companies, if not you know growth for the for American jobs everywhere in the United States, it, it is undeniable that American firms have done well in China in many different sectors. So it's market access and then um, China as a source of exports. And so um, China does not supply much capital to the United States except for in its purchases of um, U.S. government debt, which, again, is an open market operation rather than something negotiated between governments. And so so I'm not sure how they'll respond to that. I'm really not sure. I would suspect that the business environment for some American firms in China will get a little bit worse, um, but I'm not quite sure how that will work. But it's not clear to me what policy tools they have that would seem reciprocal ex ante. Um, but we know they're going to be upset about that. And, um, and, and I wonder, I think that part of what Yellen was talking to them for about behind those closed doors for seven or nine hours was what those controls might look like, what the logic of them is. And the Chinese are probably thinking about how they might respond. Um, I'm not sure it'll necessarily be tit for tat. We don't see Chinese respond t- tit for tat for everything, right? In fact, you know, after October 7th, right, they said, and after the Huawei listing in 2019, they said, well, we're going to make our own entity list. And they basically put nothing on it, right, until their recent investigation of Micron. So they don't react in a fit of peak, right? So they typically roll things out. Their timing is considered, and I think the fact that the export or the the outbound um, investment restrictions have been delayed in the U.S. is not necessarily a bad thing either. I think that means they're being well crafted and well considered, and and likely sort of discussed with the Chinese side before they're rolled out. Um, and then there'll be a period of notice and comment. And so I think that's that's reasonable policy making by the administration. But I just hope they do it before someone in Congress gets to it and writes some some bill that you know. <laughs> I mean, people forget that the first version of the firma. Act right had um, would have had the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States review every outbound investment of any firm with a U.S. business, which would have been a truly profound change to global capitalism, if not essentially a, a complete reconfiguration of globalization. And so, the stakes are high. And and I think I, I for one think it's good to have some delay in some of these policies um, on both sides so that they can be well considered and well discussed. Thank you very much, Meg, for this very wide-ranging conversation, not only about Secretary Yellen's trip, but also about where we are, broadly speaking, with respect to the U.S.-China economic relationship. Some areas of optimism and also some a, a lot of areas where, as you said, the relationship is still very fragile. Yeah, it's been nice to talk about it. Um, no shortage of things to discuss. And so thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. 